1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
1: Monday morning, the 16th of December. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Conservative Party, as you know, has won the British general election and will be returned to office. The Tories' biggest win since 1987 gives the party a majority of 78 seats and means Boris Johnson can get Brexit done. Mr Johnson is no longer reliant on the DUP to remain in power, and can agree uh, to Northern Ireland leaving the EU on a basis different to the rest of the UK. That will happen by the end of uh, January next year, and then they say the work begins. The DUP lost two of its seats, and it follows its election humiliation by entering into talks today to restore power sharing in Northern Ireland, or else go back to the people as fresh Assembly elections will be held if the institutions are not restored by the 13th of January. Whatever about leaving the EU or voting the Tories into government with a decisive mandate. It's one thing for the people in the UK. The result, of course, is important here for people. And I've been speaking with the Minister for European Affairs, Helen McEntee, and asked her what she thinks this means from an Irish perspective.
0: Well, I think from an Irish perspective, what we really wanted from this election was a decisive outcome, and whether that was Boris Johnson as Prime Minister with a majority or else perhaps Jeremy Corbyn a coalition or some other form of majority which allowed us to put some kind of motion in place because as you know for the past two years probably we could say anything that has been agreed between the UK and the EU uh, was never certain and, and for the most part never managed to pass through a majority vote in the House of Commons so this vote for us at least gives us clarity whether you supported one or another or whether you had a a particular view as to what you would like as an outcome it does finally mean that most likely before Christmas the withdrawal agreement the, the second version if you like that we have negotiated with Boris Johnson Will finally pass through the House of Commons. We then will see it go to the House of uh, to the European Parliament. And, and having just been in the Parliament myself only about two weeks ago, I met with members across all political divides, and I don't see any difficulty in it passing through the European Parliament. Mm. So for Ireland, what that provides is certainty. I, I spoke to a business only last week who said that their their orders, their their, their overall business is down because people are not making decisions, because they're not uh, buying, they're not you know, planning forward because they still didn't know what was going to happen. So I, I hope mm. for people like that, for different industries and sectors, we're now going to be able to move on to phase two. But as, as you know, and I think as many people listening, phase two of the negotiations are going to be equally as challenging, but also equally as important for a lot of people on this island because we're talking about an east-west relationship. But if I could just, in, in terms of the north-south, what this means is that we will prevent a border from re-emerging. It means that our all-island economy can continue to develop. It means that the peace process we can hopefully get back on track in terms of investing in our communities and our relationships but also our place in the single market will will also be protected.
1: Okay, well, I suppose that people have had enough of Brexit uh, but this is really the end of the beginning more to the point uh, because uh, we enter into phase two. So, Uh, There's a lot more ahead of us, uh, as you say, Minister, but uh, realistically speaking, the withdrawal agreement should be agreed by uh, the end of January and then nothing will change until uh, December of next year uh, uh, and that could even be extended.
0: Well, the 31st of January will most likely be the deadline now for, for this to pass through the various stages because the fact that the European Parliament won't be able to address it. You know before Christmas, we move then on to phase two We're talking about a future relationship, and what Boris Johnson has always said is that he would not seek an extension, so the transition period would mean that until december next year two thousand and twenty there would be no change, but then whatever new arrangement was put in place, whatever kind of free trade agreement or, or or other kind of a relationship that we managed to to bring together in saying that though there's a lot of people and and I suppose I probably would be one of those who are very skeptical that a trade deal could be actually put in place and complete by the end of next year you look at the Mm -hmm. the the canada deal which took almost well between seven and ten years you look at any other trade deal you're talking three or four or five years now this is obviously unprecedented because it's a country that has been a member of the european union but again we do know that boris johnson has talked about doing big trade deals elsewhere he's talked about Mm -hmm. divergence and obviously from an eu point of view and an irish point of view There has to be a level playing field and we have to make sure that these negotiations uh, are are, are taken and and that we, I suppose, there are so many areas to be dealing with that we are happy with every piece of it.
1: And when that deadline was set, the withdrawal agreement should have uh, happened a a year ago and it would have allowed two years uh, of a transition period. So it is most likely that it will be extended. But there will be no change in terms of how we trade on this island now or it would seem uh, going into the future because to all intents and purposes a backstop will be in place won't it Minister?
0: Well it's whatever I suppose you want to call it the the withdrawal agreement the first one that was negotiated had the backstop, what we're talking about here now has slightly changed, we know that um, if you're doing trade in Northern Ireland or if the UK goods are moving to Northern Ireland there will have to be some form of checks uh, and that is yes I suppose the detail to be negotiated and dealt through a committee that will be set up but what we know is that there will be no tariffs, there will be no checks, there will be no barriers between trade north and south which obviously obviously prevents a border from re-emerging, but also Mm. means that those who engage in cross-border trade, and there's many in our own counties and and Lys and Mead here, a huge amount, particularly in the agri-sector, that they will not be impacted. And this is obviously something we have always uh, been throughout this whole process trying to protect. It also means Mm. that people in Northern Ireland, and, and obviously the big question now is, how can we and when can we get a functioning executive up and running Mm. as soon as possible but whether or not we have an executive up and running, this deal will only come into play if a majority of elected representatives, whether the House is sitting or not, agree for that to happen. Okay, but the
1: bottom line is that Northern Ireland will have a a different relationship with the European Union than the rest of the UK and it will have a, a different relationship with the Republic than the rest of the UK and whether you call it a backstop or whatever name you put on it Uh, it is an economic union, North and South, isn't it?
0: Well, I think what we've all tried to acknowledge is that Northern Ireland is somewhat different in that, you know, even the Good Friday Agreement and so much of what underpins it allows for people to acknowledge as being British or Irish or both. And so this unique position has always been understood very clearly, I think, by us, but of course by our European colleagues as well. And I think what this new deal takes into account is that there is a unique situation in Northern Ireland. And again, we know that the vast majority of people mm. in Northern Ireland, they support it the first backstop, but they also support this. albeit yeah. there are still questions to be answered. How will this work exactly? What kind of paperwork will people perhaps have to, to, to have Or to engage in, if there are to be some additional checks, and I suppose that the the important thing is that there will be minimal checks from a a UK Northern Ireland point of view, but there has to be enough to satisfy. Um, everybody that any goods that are coming in that are not uh, destined for or that perhaps are destined for the single market, that they are marked appropriately. Okay. So There is still a little bit of work to work all of this out but I think what's important is that the majority of people in Northern Ireland support this and I think it leaves them in quite a unique position in that they can now access the UK market unfettered access, but also the hmm. EU single market.
1: Okay, but this economic union, some might argue, will be uh, the first step towards uh, reunited Ireland, uh, a full reunification, uh, north and south, and uh, all of this uh, obviously as a result of how the DUP suffered in uh, the elections, and how it's lost its influence, and how it's lost the ability to tell the British government what to do. Boris Johnson now can go ahead with a backstop or whatever the case may be. The DUP now on the back foot and will have to go back into power sharing. And I think that's expected to happen before the 13th of January. Uh, when would you expect there to be a border poll, Minister?
0: Well, I don't expect there to be a border poll anytime soon. And I think it's important to remind people that the first backstop and the first uh, mechanism that was agreed, in fact, at Theresa May, allowed for Northern Ireland and the whole of the UK to remain together as part of the, the eu's customs union so this is something that we actively supported and and the vast majority of people again in northern ireland supported but as people know that wasn't passed through and there were various different political groupings that didn't support that previous backstop what we have now we fully believe um protects the territorial integrity of northern ireland as part of the uk it protects The Good Friday Agreement and is very much in line with the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement but you're right in saying I think the dynamic in Northern Ireland is changing and we've seen that with those recent elections this week. We've seen now where I think a more moderate and a middle ground in politics has started to emerge. But what we've also seen and what was very clear uh, in any message that was sent over the North uh, throughout these elections is that people want a functioning executive. Uh, They want it to get up and running as soon as possible because things are stalling, because decisions can't be made. Uh, And it creates a vacuum and allows uh, incidents like we saw last year uh, where violence was slowly starting to creep in and re-emerge, I think it does allow for those kind of incidents to happen. So uh, this week, Dishonest and the Nathishek could be very keen to move uh, and get this process running. I know when Taoiseach spoke to Boris Johnson last week. This was number one of their priority. And as we've rightly said, if this doesn't happen and the executive isn't up and running by the 13th of January, then the only option is another election. And I really think at this stage, people in Northern Ireland do not want to see another election. But I think the idea of a border poll you know, really, we need to get beyond Brexit. We need to, to focus on getting the Assembly up and running uh, and we need to start working on building our relationship, which which probably has been strained in the last few years because of Brexit. So mm. it, it certainly, from our point of view, is, is not the time.
1: Uh, and... Are you concerned at all about a resurgence of uh, the violence uh, from uh, the past minister? Because the threat had been or the concern had been that if there were border checks in place, uh, that they would have become targets. Uh, but we were also told by some unionists uh, that if Boris Johnson's deal was uh, to be implemented, well, then that could result in bombs going off in Limerick.
0: what. Well- What I would say is violence is never acceptable. So for anybody to suggest that because a particular person becomes prime minister, then violence is more likely, is no better than um, violence to be acceptable if a border were to be introduced. So it's, it's never acceptable. And everything that we have done has been to try... Uh, and negate any kind of, albeit a a minimal fraction or a minority group in Northern Ireland uh, who would like to see this kind of uh, action or or these kind of actions re-emerge. So everything we have been doing is to try and prevent that. Uh, And obviously this this deal that is currently negotiated and which we hope will pass through the House of Commons, we believe is uh, something that the majority of people in Northern Ireland want. Um, in fact, we know it's, it's, it's what the majority of people in Northern Ireland want, so I do not think the majority of people should be beholden to a minority of people who do support violence, um, because this is something that we have spent far too long trying to move away from. Uh, this is something that over 21 years we have finally begun to, to, to incorporate and, and um, communities have begun to work together where they had never done in the past. We're starting to see economic prosperity in areas where we never saw in the past. And this is because of peace. So anybody who in any way tries uh, to, to, to change that or to, to, employ, to, 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 to put forward a, a minority view, uh, then that's something that really should never be acceptable and should never be tolerated.
1: Okay, Minister, thank you very much indeed uh, for taking the time to speak to us this morning. Thank you. The Minister for European Affairs and Fidigale TD for Meath East, Helen McEntee, speaking to me before we came on here today. Michael,
0: Michael Reed on, on LMFM.
1: FM. Now, the delay of uh, treatment uh, for patients uh, suffering from cancer at Crumlin Children's Hospital is nothing new. This is according uh, to a woman from County Meath, Nadia Vavro, who joins us now. And you may have heard Nadia on LMFM's news yesterday talk uh, about her experience last year and how she's already lodged 30 complaints against the hospital in Cromwell. Good morning to you, Nadia, and thanks uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme this morning. Tell us uh, about your son, Slav. He's 14 years of age, isn't he?
2: Yes, Slav is 14, uh, 14 years old, and he was diagnosed with cancer nearly two years ago in January 2018.
1: And he's stage four.
2: He was stage four, yes, at the time when he was diagnosed.
1: Okay, so uh, you've uh, obviously had uh, a lot of concern and uh, a lot of issues to deal with uh, through the health service. Tell us a little bit about your experience, if you would, please, Nadia.
2: Yeah, so unfortunately, we were under a lot of pressure uh, when we got uh, Slav diagnosed, and uh, soon after, uh, we had to deal with uh, issues in the hospital. Uh, It didn't start immediately, and uh, we were told at the beginning uh, we have to strictly follow uh, SLAVS protocol. But maybe a few weeks or maybe just a month or two after, there were no beds and there was a shortage of staff in the hospital as well. So his treatment couldn't be really completed on the time, according to protocol.
1: Okay. Uh, So how long uh, of a delay did he face into?
2: So usually, uh, sloth treatment was delayed between one and five days. It didn't happen every time, but actually, it happened so many times. I really, I, I really lost counting. I, I don't know how many times, but it was, it was really, uh, regular occur- occurrence, I would say.
1: It happened more than 30 times, did it?
2: No, not all my complaints were relevant uh, to shortage of bed or stuff. Actually, I, I have to clarify some of those complaints were, uh, Uh, due to different issues uh, which we identified in the hospital. So just some of them were um, in relation to shortage of beds and stuff.
1: Okay, and maybe we can come back to that in a a moment. Uh, But when Slav's chemotherapy was uh, delayed, what did that mean for Slav? Uh, Because uh, I take it, uh, if he's uh, stage four, that it's palliative chemotherapy that he's receiving.
2: Yeah, it was a very difficult time, of course. And uh, At the beginning, we were not even able to tell him his diagnosis, and we actually never told him his his prognosis. So every time when we went for chemotherapy, we had to emotionally prepare him uh, for for this treatment because it's really very difficult. It's really uh, harsh, uh, harsh, harsh treatment for him. So once he was ready to go to the hospital and to get chemotherapy, we received a phone call, and we were told there is no bed. So of course he was crying and um, the following day we were trying to prepare him again and this agony was really continuing for a couple of days. Um, I was also um, ready to go. I packed everything uh, to take with us to the hospital. I prepared food for him for three days. Uh, so it was really difficult for all families.
1: Yeah. Uh, And when you say he was crying, that was because of uh, the disappointment? Is it because he had psyched himself up uh, for going uh, into hospital for the treatment?
2: Of course. uh, uh, He was somehow ready to go. Of course, this is not something what uh, you would like to tell your child to bring him to the hospital and uh, to tell him we have to go for chemotherapy. But once he's He's somehow ready to go, and then you you are told you cannot go because there are no beds. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, actually, there were beds, but there was shortage of staff, so that's another issue. And I would like to <clears throat> highlight uh, that staff in the Krumlin Hospital were brilliant and they are really good and supportive. But my understanding is they have to work under such a pressure under these conditions when they cannot really provide. Uh, basics and uh, the beds and uh, really uh, treatment for children mm.
1: uh, that they need. All right. Uh, tell me, mm-hmm. if you would, Nadia, uh, about uh, Slav's cancer. It's a, a very rare form of cancer, isn't it? Uh, how does it manifest itself uh, and yes. uh, uh, how does he suffer as a result?
2: Mm. So this uh, this cancer is really very rare. Um, Maybe there is five or four children in Ireland at this moment with uh, uh, the same diagnosis and maybe not the same stage as SLAV has. So uh, this is uh, called alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma, and it's a subtype of sarcoma. His uh, his cancer started under the arch of his foot, uh, so it was well hidden, and we we were not able to notice this. And uh, at the time when it was discovered, it spread around his body, so there were metastasis in his bones. So this is something what they call bone involvement uh, and it's in bone marrow. So it's very hard to treat in bone marrow. There is actually not possibility to get a bone marrow transplant for SLAV because uh, this is not part of his protocol. It might be relevant to other diagnosis, but not ours. So that, that makes uh, this even more difficult because there is not so many options.
1: And... What do the doctors hope to do for Slav uh, when they give him chemotherapy?
2: So we were receiving chemotherapy last year for 27 weeks. It was between January and uh, August uh, 2018. So we are of the treatment of chemo- chemotherapy at this moment, but we still go to Krumlin Hospital for IV medication to strengthen Slav's bones. So it means we can really see results there is still shortage of staff and beds and I'm still in touch with other parents as well. And I have to say, some of them might be afraid to talk to media because they are under so much pressure uh, while during active treatment for chemotherapy. So, yeah.
1: Mm. Is he in pain?
2: Uh, he is in pain. He has episodes of pain because uh, it affected his spine has uh, six compression fractures of his vertebrae so it, uh, often he's in pain especially when we are in the car um, he's he's getting this treatment, IV medication uh, for pain and for bones uh, to heal um, it, he's still suffering, uh, we never got uh, uh, something what is called MET, uh, it means no evidence of disease, we never got that statement from the doctor and uh, uh, we know prognosis for the diagnosis is not very good, but mm. we are just hoping for a miracle.
1: Okay, but uh, am I right in thinking that uh, the chemotherapy was recommended uh, for Slav in the hope of uh, slowing down the progression of uh, the cancer and also for reducing his level of pain?
2: Yes, uh, that's correct. And, um, it's hard to predict, really, if... Uh, if uh, this it, it, it was more palliative than uh, than curative because actually there is no cure for this type of cancer. That's what yeah. we were told, but uh, uh, we were also to- told there is five percent chance for miracles. So that's uh, why I'm saying sure. we are hoping for a miracle. And uh, uh, I always say, uh, "Slav is not a number uh, mm-hmm. from statistics," so we are really hoping for the best uh, outcome. But at this moment, he is having night sweats, uh, and I'm really afraid because night sweats uh, might be symptoms of uh, cancer. And uh, actually, he was having night sweats uh, prior to diagnosis for three months. So, if there is any child who has who is having night sweats uh, without any other. Um, reasons I would really suggest going to GP. We didn't know this might be a symptom of cancer Mm. at that time.
1: Well, if there is hope for a miracle, you have to hope for a miracle and you have to hope against hope and uh, I'm sure everybody listening can identify with that. But uh, I imagine uh, that there is a question of reality as well, Nadia, and having to accept what the doctors are saying to you. And if they are saying to you uh, that they hope to uh, make Slav comfortable uh, in the time that yeah. he has left with you, uh, well, then you would hope that he would receive the treatment that they've recommended to bring that comfort to his life, the chemotherapy, therapy, the palliative chemotherapy that has uh, been recommended uh, that he, he should have been receiving. So when it's delayed, I, I take it uh, that that comfort is being denied to some extent, whether it's uh, for a day or two or not
2: yes of course uh, it's it hard to say how what what impact uh, these delays uh, would bring for other children as well because uh, as i said there is a certain protocol for each disease which should be followed and by shortage of beds this pro- protocol is not being followed so we, nobody can say um, uh, if this might have really uh, negative impact uh, on the outcome and I believe it it can have negative outcome because uh, there might be a time uh, for progression and uh, that's what we would like to avoid that, that that's why there is that protocol which should be followed on time
1: Okay, you were disappointed with the uh, comments mm-hmm. the Taoiseach made?
2: Yes, uh, definitely it, it looks like uh, he was not even aware there is separate uh, words for children with cancer and um, even uh, uh, children with cancer they have to access Krumlin hospital through the uh, reception which is just next to emergency uh, ward uh, a uh, and uh, i think probably people don't know uh that oncology ward is at the end of Krumlin hospital so you literally have to walk i don't know maybe 600 meters maybe less i don't i don't really know but it's at the other end of the hospital, which is not very good for children because they have to go through this hospital. But I would like to highlight there is a separate world. So if you are going to the hospital, we shouldn't be mixed with other children which might have infection diseases because children uh, uh, with uh, chemotherapy and even after Mm -hmm. chemotherapy, their immune system is really very uh, low. And my my son's uh, immune system is really low at this moment as well
1: okay uh you've had a, an anonymous donation as well i understand uh which was very generous of uh, somebody to give some money towards an oxygen chamber oxygen chamber for slav
2: yes uh, that was very good news and I'm very grateful and our, our family is very grateful uh to this anonymous donor uh and uh, this donation uh, means we can buy the oxygen chamber for for home use. And that would really help us uh, to make fluff's life better. Because at this moment, we are commuting to new for Oxygen treatment three times a week. And we are actually going this morning as well.
1: Okay. Nadia, I know that you're speaking to us uh, to highlight uh, that there is a, an issue and uh, that that issue uh, is delaying treatment uh, for some very sick children, including your own son, Slav. Uh, so we'll thank you for doing that. And thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Thank you very thank much. Thank you very much indeed. Nadia Vavro, mother of Slav. Michael,
0: Michael Reed on, on LMFM. FM.
1: Now, Rise TD for Dublin South West. Paul Murphy has written to the Minister for Education to ask him if he intends uh, to amend uh, the Education Act or will he leave uh, sex education uh, to the porn industry. Paul Murphy is on the line. A very good morning to you. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. You say that the porn industry will look after educating children about sex uh, unless uh, the Education Act is amended. Why so? Good
3: morning, Michael. Um... Because that's what's currently happening. Um, sex education in Ireland is completely outdated and inadequate. That's been confirmed now by report after report. So the latest is a report from the National uh, Curriculum, um, National Council for Curriculum and Assessment, uh, which concluded which that sex education was um, too little, too late and too biological that's in line with a study by the school students union, which found something like 75% of students were not satisfied with their sex education. The vast majority learned nothing about consent. Over 80% felt that education in terms of LGBTQ relationships was inadequate. So it's, it's clear there's a real problem with sex education. But the problem is that the government seems quite set on just changing the curriculum, which is it's fine, that's good. We need to change the curriculum. But if they don't change the Education Act, and in particular, if they don't change the provision whereby religious ethos gets to determine how sex education is taught, well, then a whole group of students in our country are not going to get that sex education because legally those Church-controlled schools, which is obviously the vast, vast majority of schools, Mm -hmm. are perfectly entitled to say, no, we don't agree with contraception, we're not going to teach it, we don't agree with abortion, we're not going to teach it, we don't agree with putting this emphasis on consent, we're not going to teach it. And that, therefore, just leaves young people at the mercy of the porn that they can find on their phone and the very unbalanced view of what uh, sex is and the distorting effect that that has on young
1: people. Well, what's the problem uh, with consent? Is it uh, that the Church uh, doesn't uh, believe uh, there should be a question of consent uh, because there should be abstinence?
3: Well, it's different in different schools, and so I wouldn't want to give the impression that sex education in every Catholic school, for example, is, you know, very of, of that character, not necessarily, mm. but it, it can be in some schools, and I think we we got an answer for the reason for why that is at one stage in the in the committee hearings about this in the in the Eruptus, where there was a guy in from the Joint Managerial Board who was responsible for the management of a whole number of Catholic schools, and he said that a church document called Familiaris Consortio um, informs how schools with a Catholic ethos deliver sex education. And that document, for example, um, talks about education for chastity, mm-hmm. being absolutely essential, giving special care, special attention and care to education and virginity or, or celibacy, um, not, having an experience, not, talk, not having an introduction to the experience of pleasure and stimulus mm-hmm. leading to the loss of serenity, uh, opening the way to vice, this kind of stuff. And if, if that's your world outlook, and it's, you're perfectly entitled to have that world outlook, yeah. but you're not going to deliver a sex education curriculum which has consent at its core, which is, is what's really necessary.
1: Yeah, well, it seems uh, that, to some degree, uh, the Church would argue that uh, there shouldn't be a question of consent before marriage, because people should abstain from entering into sexual relationships b- until they're married, and that after marriage, uh, there is no question of consent, uh, that the man will have his way regardless of what she thinks.
3: I mean, that is the traditional... The Church. I think that the second part of, of that has certainly been amended to some extent. Although I'm definitely no um, theological scholar, so I couldn't say exactly when mm. or how. But I have that impression that that's been changed.
1: All right. Um, but it's an issue that Mary McAleese was uh, raising quite recently because of uh, what pa- Pope John Paul the uh, Second wrote in his book Love and Responsibility. He said it is at the very nature of the act that the man plays the active role and takes the initiative while the woman is a comparatively passive partner whose function yes. it is to accept and experience. For the purpose of the sexual act, it is enough for her to be passive and yes. unresisting, so much so that it can even take place without her volition while she is in a state where she has no awareness at all of what is happening. For instance, when she is asleep or unconscious. Uh, now, to other people, that's called rape.
3: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think to society as a whole we absolutely should um, define it as rape and we should say that every school student, regardless of what type of school they're in, has the right to have education which says that if you don't to sex, it's not sex, it's rape. Um, that doesn't stop people advocating their own religious views on whatever mm. um, outside of that setting, but at a minute Students have a right to receive that information. I mean, a, a certain backlash to this. I've gotten responses of parents saying, you know, for example, I, I quoted someone from this said about the time I was seven. I, I was seven. I knew everything there was to know about sex from the internet. I'm sure they didn't know everything there was to know, but they obviously knew some things. And some parents have said, you know, there's no way my ch- child knows anything except seven or ten or twelve or whatever. And I just think. People are in danger of being a bit naive about the reality of the information that they have access on their phones, or if they don't have phones, their friends' phones. And it's just necessary, all the more because of that, to have you know proper Mm. education about these things from an early age in an age-appropriate way. Which means it's a continual process; it changes over time. You know what I mean? You don't seven-year-old the same as what you teach a 12-year-old or a 15-year-old, mm. but you, you need to teach people you know, certain basics and in, empower them to, to face the world.
1: Yeah, you were concerned uh, that John A. Q. said uh, that uh, the ethos of a school would be protected, sort of, no matter what, uh, and uh, you took that to mean that, you know, if a Catholic ethos was such uh, that it uh, opposed contraception uh, that that would have uh, adverse effects in terms of educating young people uh, but perhaps uh, it should be uh, looked on in a different way that if the ethos is to tell children that it's okay for men to rape their wives uh, then that should uh, just be taken out of the equation altogether
3: oh, uh, absolutely um i mean it, it just for me so I, I welcome the publication of the report it's good to have you know a serious study into Uh, sex education and how students and teachers and parents experience that. Um, But when that launch of the report was combined with the minister really emphasising the question of the ethos of the school being central, the ethos will be protected, to me he was giving a clear signal to those on the Catholic right who have opposed a review of sex education, who are against the reform of it, that don't worry, we're not going to way that you are able mm. to teach or not teach sex education in the schools that you have uh, influence or control over and I just think that defeats like the entire purpose I mean, we, we brought in a, a solidarity the objective sex education bill back in March of 2018 it passed the it doll unanimously no votes against since then it's been stalled by the government they'll say they're they're not going to give us a, a money message all of you know the usual ethics but um, and really, the meat of that was precisely changing this bit of the education to say that religious ethos shouldn't stand in the way of the delivery of the RSE curriculum. Uh, and and after that, the RSE Committee on Education concluded the same as us, that if you want to guarantee the delivery of sex education, you need to deal with it. And so just, by just doing a new curriculum and not addressing the issue of, of ethos, they're just sidestepping the issue and not resolving the issue and... and Creating more and more problems for our, our young people going forward.
1: Okay, but uh, children believe uh, that what's happening on the internet, pornography, uh, and pornographic films uh, that they're watching is uh, what actually happens I- in real life. Uh, that must be leading to a distortion of thinking.
3: Absolutely, and again, there are more studies. This is a big piece actually in the Examiner today um, about is about like yes, young people are active are watching. Porn from quite a young age, um, they're often watching, you know, violent uh, mm. porn, and it, it leaves them with expectations of what sex sh- is and should be like that are you know, wildly at odds with the reality. And um, there are all sorts of stories of like, you know, young girls, you know, teenagers, mm. you know, having boyfriends who expect to choke them while they're having sex and things like that, and Damn. that's just if you just leave a vacuum this problem to go away it's being filled by porn and it's giving people the, the wrong view and so we have to fill effective progressive inclusive um, sex education OK.
1: We have to leave it there for the moment, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme this morning. That's RISE TD for Dublin South West, Paul Murphy.
0: Michael, Michael Reid on, on
1: LMFM. FM. Now, let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie.
4: Good morning, Michael, and good morning to all our listeners. Tom from Drogheda in touch early on in relation to Brexit and says, Michael, despite... What the Irish people thought about the way the UK voters thought in relation to Brexit, it's clear now that they still want to leave the EU. Otherwise, Boris wouldn't have got such a big vote. So we read them wrong, says Tom. Okay, Seamus from Dundalk says that does Boris's resounding victory mean that he will be able to do what he wants in relation to the exit agreement Mm -hmm. should we expect a return of the border.
1: No, I don't think so, and I think this uh, was uh, the inevitable playing out in front of our eyes ever since uh, the European leaders launched Boris's uh, election campaign and uh, has resulted in him having this huge majority, the mandate to go ahead, sell out the DUP, sell out Northern Ireland if that's your perspective, uh, but to create an economic union with uh, the Republic, uh, probably is a a good result for us because we don't have a Tory government here, and God love them in the UK, but they have a Tory government, Going to do what he's going to do uh, and that will mean uh, that there will be a backstop of sorts and God, those uh, the, uh, Northern Ireland institutions uh, will be restored. That could uh, bring about some positive stuff for people in Northern Ireland and it could be the first step towards uh, a vote on reuniting Ireland for that matter.
4: Michelle from Midloude uh, says it's probably just as well that they will, they won't, they Brexit saga is finally going to be brought to an end. It's good news I feel in the sense that we will finally be able to deal with it and not still be left wondering and worrying what is going to happen. Uh, bar is needed mm. to get the big vote in order for this to finally end.
1: Well, that's it, yeah. Although it's
4: going to take some time, as you mentioned. (laughs) Oh, sure, it's only starting now.
1: Yeah, that's the end of the beginning. Now we've got to get into the tough work, as they say. Um,
4: Another listener says, uh, Paul, actually, uh, from County Mead, says, now that we know Brexit is definitely happening, the government should up its game in terms of providing support to businesses who are going to have to prepare, uh, especially those in-border regions. There's a lot of worry out there, says Paul.
1: Okay, well, we'll hear more about that in a a few minutes' time but let's uh, go uh, to County Meath uh, because uh, a number of government ministers, Regina Doherty, Damien English, Jim Daly and Helen McEntee will join uh, the Taoiseach in Slane Castle at a a ceremony today which uh, will also see representatives from 31 local authorities across the country highlight how Ireland is to be recognised as one of the best places in the world to grow old. We're joined by Anne Dempsey, Communications Manager and Training Facilitator with the Third Age Group. Good morning to you, Anne, and uh, thanks for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, this Good is morning, an man. acknowledgement yes. from the World Health Organisation.
5: That's it, and my own, our own CEO on your is there as well, because Third Age, we're... We've been based in Mead for over 30 years, Michael, so we're very much involved with older people in Mead and have been for so long. Part of the solution rather than part of the problem.
1: OK. Uh, yes. why, why is it such a, a good place to grow old, do you think? Ireland? Yes.
5: Well, I suppose today is acknowledging as kind of the official end of the fact that all the local authorities in Ireland have brought into this uh, age-friendly strategy. And I think that, again, has has involvement around public spaces, you know, libraries, wider aisles and shops, all that kind of environmental kind of things. I suppose if you ask me as a woman and a person, I think leaving out any kind of strategies, I think we're a kind people. I think we're, a, we're a good people. I think we still have very good values. I'm just answering person to person now at that level, Michael.
1: Mm. And mm. we're getting older and older
5: Well, this is it. I mean, there's a thousand different statistics around Ireland and ageing, and they all are pointing in the same direction, that we're progressively ageing. And we were, uh, the, the statistic that I always find very dramatic, Michael, is that in the year 1900, older people in Ireland were 1 in 25. We're now 1 in 8, and we'll soon be 1 in 4.
1: Right, okay. We're that's,
5: that's dramatic, isn't
1: it? Oh, it's hugely dramatic. Uh, yeah, they, yeah. Uh, say that there was, uh, just uh, reading it in the Irish Times this morning, 629,800 people who were a- over 65 in 2016, yes. and that's to increase to 1.6 million by
5: 2051. Yes, yes. And I mean, as I say, we talked about the environment, but the, I think a key piece to this is helping people to age in place remain in their own place in their own homes in their own communities Mm. and I suppose if I were to talk about third age as well as being involved in County Mead for so long we have national programmes which are doing that you and I talk frequently Michael about Senior Line which Mm. is Ireland's only dedicated national telephone service for older people we'll be looking at our 219 stats soon and I know we're going to see that we have taken over 10,000 calls this year and then Getting back to County needs our newest programme from Period h Age, Age Well is a, a, a face-to-face visiting programme for older people, which has been remarkably successful since it started. We have um, we've made over 4,000 visits to older people, and in the 16 months since deception, people we, we've done baseline assessments, Michael, and we do yeah. assessments every four months to see how people are going. And there's been an over 90% decrease in loneliness of of people that are being visited. And again, it's peer. They're being visited by an older person, a trained older companion.
1: The 1920s were the swinging 20s. We're we're about to enter into the 20s. I don't know if they'll be swinging or not, but I do know that there are some people who lived in the swinging 20s who'll be alive in 2020, and that's a a sign of how we're ageing as a, a population. And they say that Uh, by 2031 there will be 250,000 people in this country who will be aged 80 and over and I suppose uh, there's uh, lots of challenges uh, that go with all of of that uh, as well Uh, but uh, we're planning for that and that's the recognition uh, that uh, the World Health Organisation is given today. to the local and I authorities think, today. Yes. I mean,
5: what mm. you're saying is hugely important. We all know people m- who are living living much older, even reading some of the death of Moses Michael, mm. if we take it at that level, people are living longer and they're, you know they're much older by the time they are coming to the end of their lives. But that phrase that, again, I never can get out of my mind, we are adding years to the life but are we adding life to the years i know it comes mm-hmm. a bit glib but i say, think it's saying an awful lot because with better housing better health all of that people are living longer but like through senior line we'd know that the quality of many lives are not as good as they might be. So, it's quality of life. I think is very important. If we want to talk about people living longer, okay. we want them to live longer, good quality, happy, enjoyable, engaged lives, uh,
1: well and well. to look forward uh, to yeah. look to to the future and how uh, yeah. we will have so many people to cater for. And that is uh, the idea of uh, these programs uh, that have been in operation over the last. 10 years so that uh, the recognition recognition today is for having future-proofed society for such developments and uh, things such as housing developments libraries airport guidelines mm. car parking uh, and indeed customer service communication with older people these are the kind of uh, things that the local authorities have improved on uh, we're told uh, which makes it one of uh, the best places in the world to grow old in it's,
5: it's, it's- it's a lovely, it's a lovely thing to know, and I think one of the main points of that is is the fact that it's 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 bringing so many different initiatives together. Do you know what I mean? Because so many things are piecemeal. You know, the, there's a bit of this mm. and a bit of the, that, but we do need a strategy for all of this. And a strategy at local authority level is so effective because it's bottom up development. You know, mm. and there's all those things you read out, you know, libraries, all those yeah. public spaces. And if that is supplemented with community services and helping people to be better and happier at home, mm. I think we've kind of, kind of, we can we're circling the wagons in a good way. Do you know what I mean? It mm-hmm. sounds quite cohesive, doesn't
1: it? Okay, and we'll conclude by giving out uh, your telephone <laughs> number. And uh, Thank because you so you much, say Michael. Third yeah. Age has been working in me for a long time, and you operate the senior line, uh, and people can call that line from ten in the morning till ten at night, and the number is one eight hundred. Eighty forty five ninety one. That's one eight hundred to eighty forty five ninety one. If they would like to talk to an older volunteer.
5: And Michael, will open mm. all over Christmas.
1: Oh, very. Good. Christmas
5: very Day, much. Christmas yeah. Eve, yeah. At yeah. ten to ten every day. So beware of older neighbours at Christmas.
1: Okay, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Michael. And very Dempsey, much. Thank you, And Dempsey, communications manager and training facilitator with Third Age. Now let's go back uh, to some of uh, the other comments uh, that you have there, Marie.
4: Yes, Michael Gronier from Drogheda was in touch. She was listening to your interview with Nadia and she says that she found it very upsetting that she's a mother herself and she says that it must be awful as it is to find that your child has cancer. But you'd expect that they'd get the absolute best treatment in our hospitals. And to think that uh, treatment is being postponed because for whatever reason, whether it's lack of a uh, shortage of staff or shortage of beds, She says that this just cannot be allowed to continue and she really is annoyed over it. Moving on to sex education in schools. Uh, Sheila phoned in. She says, as regards to sex education, she thinks it's best coming from parents, not from the schools. Leinster House, she feels interfering far too much in the schools and uh, it's not what parents want.
1: Okay, but your children are learning about it elsewhere, whether you know it or accept it or not. They have phones and we live in a digital world and there's lots of pornography. And I think most of the children, if not all of the children, have experienced it to some degree.
4: Yes, Anna says the last place you want young people to learn about sex is from the internet. We need to look at the actions of young boys in particular In our society who are accessing porn and then think that's part of normal relationships.
1: And the young girls as well, because I think a lot of the young girls are accessing porn and believe that that's the way they should behave when they're with boys.
4: Good point. Sally says, should it really fall on schools to teach children about sex? With my own children, I taught them what they needed to know, depending on their age. I I gave them the information I felt was right for their particular age and then, you know, gave more information as they got older. But I suppose, on the other hand, not every parent does that and you want children to be taught uh, and they need to have this information as they get older.
1: Okay, well, you're applying filters there to what you're telling your children. They don't apply when they go on the Internet.
4: Another listener says that what has the church got to do with how sex is taught in schools? It should be determined by the Department of Education and it should be the same programme in every single school. Okay. So that's it, Michael, for the moment.
1: Thank you indeed uh, for that. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, our telephone number is 1850
0: 715 958. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM.
1: Well, as you've been hearing, talks will get underway today on uh, restoring uh, the institutions in Northern Ireland. Uh, Jim Wells is a member of uh, the Legislative Assembly for the DUP in South Down, and he joins us on uh, the line now. And no doubt you're biting at the bit to get back to work.
6: Absolutely, Mike. I think the very clear message from the election last Thursday was a huge desire uh, amongst the people of Northern Ireland Get Stormont up and running, and I think we would be crazy not to listen to that message.
1: Okay, uh, so you'll do a deal then rather than face into another election, I take it?
6: Well, uh, yes, there will be a deal, obviously, uh, there'll be some agreement which will be reached in order to get back to Stormont. I have no idea what that will contain. But uh, we lost 5 percentage points at the poll, and Sinn Féin lost 7 percentage points. Uh, The alliance gained uh, a very high number of votes, and the message is very clear. The people of Northern Ireland are just fed up with three years of stagnation.
1: Totally, and utterly, and not surprisingly so, but I suppose the other message uh, for your party is uh, that the majority of MPs in Northern Ireland are now nationalists. If you face into an Assembly election, uh, the same uh, could transpire in terms of the breakdown.
6: Well, first of all, whilst uh, there are eight Unionist MPs, there's also one alliance, um, and there's uh, nine nationalists, because say the majority of people voted for Unionist parties. So the stats still indicate that uh, if there's an Assembly election, there would be a very substantial unionist vote there. Um, so it is a world of a difference between an election and a referendum on the future of Northern Ireland and I would still maintain that there will be a strong majority in favour of remaining within the United Kingdom. But before that's all <laughs> discussed, uh, the talks start today and I think mm. um, it's incumbent upon all the parties to get this resolved and get back as quickly as possible.
1: Okay, but your nose is bleeding today because you got punched by the electorate because of the position you took on that referendum and you wanted Brexit. Uh, It seems as though the people of Northern Ireland never wanted that.
6: Well, you can't explain Sinn Féin's even more dramatic fall on Brexit. No, I think it's it's clearly a signal for a return to devolution to deal with another issue that arose practically every door and that was the state of the health service in Northern Ireland and that's really not related to Brexit at all uh, we have 300,000 people on the waiting list in Northern Ireland uh, and the population are extremely worried about the future of their health provision so the, a, there was a mixture of issues but mm. the signal was sent to the two main parties that the want storm went back. It's quite clear Sinn Féin had even more dramatic fall in its vote than we had.
1: Okay what do you think of Boris Johnson this morning? Did he sell you out? Did he throw you under the bus? Uh, are you about to join an economic uni- union with the Republic?
6: still <laughs> uh, thinking, Mike. Um, certainly uh, we no not sure. of, I'm not sure. No, no intention of joining uh, any economic union with the Irish Republic. You want to maintain good relationships.
1: Yeah, well you're going to leave uh, the European Union on a basis different to that of the rest of the UK, aren't you?
6: Yeah, yes, Mike, but yes. it's interesting that there then follows a year's negotiations on a trade deal. If that trade deal ends up with no tariffs or no barriers between us and the European Union, then effectively there won't be a border down the Irish uh, Sea. And the Prime Minister has given us an assurance that that will indeed happen, that there will be no border. So we're in there to fight to ensure that Northern Ireland leaves the European Union on exactly the same basis as the rest of the United Kingdom. That's where we're in there to achieve.
1: But it's not going to under this withdrawal deal, is it? Uh, Or not not necessarily. Uh, And that's why you said the withdrawal agreement was unacceptable, and now you're accepting it.
6: No, no, we're not. We are in there to amend the withdrawal deal, to ensure and keep the mantle that you're going to hear from me for the next year is that Northern Ireland must leave on exactly the same basis as the rest of the UK. And that's what we're in there to fight for. Because anything else... Would but sir, that's a waste of
1: time. time. The Tories have a majority of 78. Uh, you've lost all of your power.
6: Yes, but there's still a lot of Conservative backbenchers who are unhappy with any prospect of a custom border down the Irish Sea. And also a lot of English companies who export to Northland who are unhappy. And I believe, if we get the right trade deal with the European Union, this issue may disappear, and that's where our focus is on with our ETP.
1: Which is why you're accepting what you were saying a month ago was unacceptable.
6: We're not accepting it. No, definitely not. And in our manifesto, we made it very clear that we are totally opposed to that aspect of the deal, and that's what we're going to work. Okay, to do. but that's
1: going to be ratified by the 31st of January, whether you're opposed to it or not. Which is why you're accepting it, uh, despite finding it unacceptable a month ago.
6: No, no, no! if you bitterly oppose something and vote consistently against it, that doesn't mean you're accepting it, Mike. So don't try and put words into my mouth. You may be uh, the loudest, highest paid uh, commentator and broadcaster, but you're certainly not going to twist words and, and force me to say things that I won't be doing.
1: OK, but you have no choice but uh, to accept what others are deciding uh, despite your opposition.
6: We have no choice but to bitterly oppose it. Yeah. And then when the legislation goes through Westminster, which still has to go through, then we'll be putting down a series of amendments to deal with this one aspect of Brexit, which we find unacceptable. Uh, and, I mean, we're, we're not at any stage going mm. to vote for this situation because we do not want to detach ourselves from the rest of the UK.
1: What do you think uh, about uh, the deal from the Republic's perspective? It's a good deal, really, isn't it?
6: Well, uh, yes, obviously, the, I'm sure... Yeah. The, the there's no, pro- very there's, no pro-
1: there's no prospect of a border on this island, uh, and if anything happens, uh, the North, or Northern Ireland, if you prefer, will uh, be divided from the United Kingdom. Well, one of
6: the great achievements of in my interviews with you, Mike, has been pushing you to say the phrase Northern Ireland, and that's been a great achievement. But, look, uh, the, 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 the people are talking about the indicted Ireland and, and, and greater assimilation of the Republic... Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die on Tuesday. Similarly, there's an awful lot of people in Northern Ireland that like United down. but if I told them it was coming next week, they'd have kittens. They'd be saying, let's put it off to get my business deal sorted out of my house built or whatever. Yeah. The reality is we have this mythical uh, aim of United Ireland held in the, in, amongst nationalists, but they don't want it immediately, and in fact, they probably don't want it at all. So therefore, we will continue to maintain... Northern Ireland's positions in the United Kingdom and also maintain friendly good relationships with the Irish Republic. Mm. But we're not lusting after any form of unity or assimilation with the 26 counties. We're not.
1: Has the DUP any red lines going into uh, these talks on restoring the institutions? If, for example Sinn Féin insisted uh, that someone other than Arlene Foster uh, take uh, the position of First Minister, uh, would you be able to agree to that?
6: Well, Conor Murphy last week made it clear that that no longer was a demand from Sinn Féin. We have never dictated to Sinn Féin who their leader and Deputy First Minister will be. Even when that person was tainted with association with Republican violence, we have never ever said you couldn't have Martin McGuinness as your Deputy First Minister. Similarly, no party has a right to dictate us who we have as our leader and a First Minister. And I'm glad to say that penny's dropped because the Sinn Féin have it very clear that they're not demanding that. So that issue's gone. We're really down now just to the Irish Language Act. That's all that's left on the table.
1: Okay. and what's going to happen with that?
6: Well, uh, we've always said we're happy with a culture act which would encompass all of the cultures in old land the Lithuanians, the Chinese, the Irish speakers, the Ulster Scots I would deliver a fair deal for all of those minority communities um, I, I'm not certain, there clearly has been some movement uh, in that particular issue amongst Sinn Féin and MLAs not quite certain how far but certainly what, I, what Arlene Foster suggested I think was an excellent idea is that the Assembly came back for a short period to deal with this issue, and if it wasn't resolved, then the Assembly would go into suspension again, and I think you could not be more generous than that, and an issue which I know is of concern to, to many Irish Republicans who live in this parliamentary the United kingdom, mm. um, and I hope that sense would prevail on this one issue, which is not as important as health, or Brexit, or the economy, we'll be, will we be able to deal with it and get back to uh, devolution, which the country so much is yearning for, and I got it at the doors constantly. Why can't you get back to Stormont and to deal with these hugely difficulties that we're facing?
1: Okay, uh, you've little to win, uh, little left to win. Uh, You've lost a lot of of ground going into these negotiations. Uh, If an Irish Act is agreed, uh, what would that mean for you and your membership of the DUP, Jim Wells?
6: Um, I can I say to you, Mike, that the previous proposals for an Irish Language Act which were launched in February 2018 provoked the greatest degree of hostility that I have ever encountered as an elected representative in 44 years. It was absolutely toxic and it won't just be me. Every unionist uh, of all shades will be making it clear that something along that line will not be acceptable. So I won't be out on my own, can I assure you, and I can't see the DUP at any level accepting that particular type of proposal. But greater spending in the Irish Language Act? Absolutely. Uh, I have policies to facilitate it it's, uh, uh, in schools and universities. I can't see a problem so, you know, but the world—the
1: a- world is changing before your eyes. Uh, in a, a state now uh, that uh, allows for abortion, that uh, allows for same-sex marriage, that could remain in uh, the European Union forever, uh, that uh, may introduce a, uh, an Irish language act, and uh, may vote on uh, reuniting Ireland.
6: Wishful thinking, Mike, uh, and dream on, dream on. There well, two they're two are the concerns.
1: That. They're the concerns you had a month ago, speaking of things that were acceptable and unacceptable a month ago. Well, they were the concerns you had.
6: Yes, and unfortunately, two of those issues were imposed upon us by uh, direct um, uh, government, uh, effectively at Westminster. We certainly would have wanted nothing to do with them. But you know, moving forward from that to a <laughs> United Isles <laughs> definitely dream on. It won't happen because. 99% of what you would term the Unionist population will never support it. And a significant number of the Catholic Nationalist population will not vote for United Ireland. And I am confident in 10 years' time you'll, you will you will still be having this conversation <laughs> and the United Ireland will have not moved forward one inch.
1: OK, Jim, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you, as always. Jim Wells, DUP MLA for South Michael,
0: Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. <laughs>
1: Uh, Supreme Court interpretation of uh, the landlord and tenant ground rents legislation meant that certain ground rent tenants who had been eligible to acquire the freehold title in their properties may not be eligible to do so. However, uh, an amendment uh, to that law from 1978 has passed uh, through uh, the Senate, and it has particular significance for people in Carrick McCross. Let's hear why Pat Byrne, producer of what next for Carrick McCross is on uh, the line and uh, a very good morning to you. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on uh, the program this morning. Uh, This has uh, significant uh, consequences for a a small group of people in Carrick McCross. Perhaps uh, you'd explain it to us.
7: Okay. Thanks for having me, Michael. And good morning. Uh, uh, the success of the documentary really was down to the people that participated in it. But to land an interview from Professor Wiley, who's a leading academic in Irish land law and a, a major authority on all matters relation to that. Uh, the problem arose when, I suppose, way back in the 1990s, that a number of business people came together to see if they could buy out the freehold from the Shirley estate or GAS Holdings, which is their leasing company. That group set about and formed, it became known as the Shirley Tenants Action Group, and uh, stagged for short. They sought legal advice, and they went to a local firm, uh, Martin Crilly, who uh, was involved in the case the whole way up to the Supreme Court. Unfortunately, Martin passed away uh, just after the decision was made, but Tony Donaher who was in the firm and was involved in the Supreme Court ruling or decision in that case, uh, give an interview on the documentary as well. But the decision that the Supreme Court uh, made, uh, even though Gus O'Gorman bought out or got the right to buy out his freehold, the, the, the decision that the Supreme Court came to and the interpretation of predecessors entitled left the situation that other tenants couldn't challenge legally because of that ruling. Now, the case started in 1998, and the decision came under, in 2012 from the Supreme Court. Now, that's 14 years, but it wasn't mm. until another four years in 2016 that Gus Gorman finally received uh, the deeds of his premises, uh, that he could actually take full possession of it. The building was lying idle on the main street from, I think, 2005. Mm. When he built his new supermarket, he left the building idle. So now he could take possession of it and move on and grow his business. But the tenants couldn't challenge uh, legally because the way of the the interpretation of the Supreme Court. So ultimately, uh, legislation needed to be enacted. During the making of the documentary that was presented by Michael Fisher, I approached Rory O'Hanlon just to see if uh, we were right in looking at a legislation move or a constitutional move. Now, after a long meeting, Rory said that he would offer a, a meeting with Jim O'Callaghan if we so needed. We showed the documentary in the Shirley Arms. It was packed. There was a discussion after it, which was chaired by Frank McNally of the Irish Times. And subsequent from that, the interest grew. The headlines in the local Northern Standard brought it to full focus. The local county council, uh, municipal council, brought it on their agenda. At that stage, then I approached Rory to set up a meeting with Jim O'Callaghan. I asked, could I bring... uh, Role, or Tony Donagher uh, to that meeting. That meeting took place in the doll and Jim O'Callaghan asked Tony Donagher if he would draft up a formula of words that would help him introduce the legislation. Tony agreed but said that he would be more confident if he could enlist the services of Professor John Wiley. So I introduced Professor Wiley to Tony and over the summer of 2017 the two gentlemen that's just mentioned drafted Mm. the formula
1: and that culminated in this uh, amendment bill uh, which was introduced uh, to the Shannon's by Robbie Gallagher of uh, Fianna Fáil last week so what will it mean uh, for people on Main Street?
7: Well it means now that they can now take out a legal challenge uh, to buy out the freehold which they were always entitled to because this legislation has started in 1833 and uh, there's been subsequent amendments over the years. Mm. But this one, to me, is more constitutionally sound because when we asked Minister Humphreys to get involved, she said this. Well, she said that she would take the amendments that Wiley, Professor Wiley and Tony drafted to the AG, to the Minister for Justice, before it was entered by Robbie into the Channels. Okay, That gives them enough time to look at it. This, they felt that it was needed to be tightened up more constitutionally uh, from the original draft, which would strengthen it. But Robbie when, but, but when it.
1: the when the legislation is amended, uh, when it's transposed in, into law, uh, that gives grounds for people to take a legal challenge, does it, uh, rather than uh, giving them uh, the right to yes. buy out their property?
7: A legal challenge now has to take place to... Uh, for the tenant to buy it.
1: Okay, so this still needs to be decided by the courts, in other words.
7: Litigation will, will have to follow, yeah, and then ultimately we'll have to go to the Supreme Court to overturn the family judgment and make that uh, decision that hopefully that they will get it right this time.
1: Okay. We'll leave it there for the moment, Pat. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Pat Byrne, producer of What Next for Carrick-McCross, landlord and tenant and local businessman himself. Now, let's go to Matthew McGreehan, uh, Rural Development Chairman with uh, the IFA in Louth, uh, who has a warning for sheep farmers once again. Good morning to you, Matthew, and thanks for joining us. Uh, There's been more trouble.
8: Yes, Michael, good morning to you and your listeners. Oh, my God, I was just contacted by a farmer there who had sheep in the Clonmore area of Tohar. Um He had sheep attacked on Saturday night by a dog or dogs, and uh, there's one sheep missing still, and uh, there, there's a few sheep very badly injured, and the rest are traumatized. So, he, as I say, he just contacted me to... Because that dog is still at large, mm-hmm. and dog or dogs are still at large, and we would ask anybody in and around the Clonmore areas in Toho, I believe, I don't know the townland myself, but, um, you know, that dog is still large. And for people to keep a good eye on their dogs, because the, he will ta- attack again. And if people aren't, let them laugh that the dogs hand them over to the pound. You
1: know? Right, uh, and it, uh, there's been a number of uh, attacks in uh, the last month.
8: There has, Michael. Uh, there has indeed. Uh, I know a fort, there's the four attack I know, but I lost 13 yeah. sheep myself, uh, which was uh, pretty pretty big attack and I was 13 sheep myself in the last month uh, you know but basically what I'm on this morning uh, is to highlight that, that uh, to this farmer in the Clanmore area and and the surrounding areas, the dog could come from a different townland, it might necessarily be, be a dog in that townland it could come from a neighbouring townland but that farmer is dependent on that grass to keep his sheep over the Christmas and over the winter and he had to move them yesterday, he is you know, a dog can do, just to remind listeners as well and dog owners, a dog can do an awful lot of damage, thousands of euros worth of damage in a very short space of time, and, you know, dog owners are liable for that damage.
1: Explain to us what you mean by that, Matthew, because I'm sure if you lost uh, 13 sheep, it must have been very distressing for you and indeed uh, for your family, but for people who don't believe uh, that their dog is a threat to animals or or don't care for that matter, uh, tell us what happened uh, to your sheep
8: yeah, hey, uh, don't do, do attack Michael. I don't want to say much because it's still on and tell you the truth. You know, as regards to getting it settled up, you know, but my sheep basically were ripped ripped apart, you know, and uh, same same with this farmer in the had the sheep in the Clamore area yesterday. You know, it can have a devastating effect. You know, uh, you know, we went to look, look after them and all that. They like get you never forget a thing like that, you know. Uh, so, like as I say, like like I remember last year too Michael and you remember mm. uh, about this time the attack started to living up in, in County Loud you know and you know it went on to for months you know I don't know what it is about the winter time do people just think the dogs won't go away anywhere in the dark I don't know but um, definitely something has to be done you know just ask people around this to me here and every 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 time of year to look after the dogs you know do
1: you
8: think, definitely, do definitely you think- a dog from back you know, if you, once he you gets the taste it you
1: know? Do you think it's that dog owners don't believe uh, that their dog would do this, or is it that they don't
8: care? Uh, I probably it's a bit of both, Michael. That um, genuinely some uh, dog owners wouldn't think that their wee dog would do this or their dog. You know, um, you know, definitely. And then and then some dog owners just don't care. You know, you know. <coughs> so it's, uh, it's a yeah.
1: bit. Okay, well. Uh, you're on the phone to tell us uh, so that yeah. uh, people can watch out for their animals, and indeed to appeal to dog owners for that matter. Yeah.
8: Just Michael, on a, on a later note. Yeah. Uh, thanks for taking me on. But if anyone would like a, a lovely free-range tucky. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> I heard a farmer on another radio station got, had problems selling his free-range turkeys, and he got rid of them. So we have uh, up here on the Cooley Mountains, we have lots of free-range turkeys for sale. Myself and my neighbours. So. Okay. Don't any, don't, a very important thing around Christmas is a talkie and a Christmas tree so like
1: uh, you know no doubt about you have, it you
8: have to have the essentials
1: ok well we'll pass your number on to anyone who wants it uh, after uh, that uh, terrible attack on uh, your farm and indeed the loss of 13 animals we'd be delighted to do that Matthew and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning that's uh, Matthew McGrehan, Rural Development Chairman with the IFA in County Louth. Michael,
0: Michael Reed on, on LMFM
1: Let's go back to the impact of the British general election result. Paddy Malone, P.R.O. for Dundalk Chamber of Commerce is on the line. A very good morning to you, Paddy, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. I don't think you've ever professed to being a fan of Boris Johnson, but all told, it probably is a good result for Ireland, is it?
9: Well, at least it produces clarity, and hopefully now that we can start uh, planning uh, for businesses that can start planning on the basis of a degree of certainty. Now, the only problem is that there were hostages to Fortune in what he committed to doing and promised everything under the sun. And I'm only hoping now that he's in power, that he can dismiss those as readily as he's dismissed other promises to other people, including the DUP, and that he gets down to doing real uh, negotiations with the EU in a constructive way. So
10: mm. that's my hope.
9: Yeah. Um, whether he actually does it or not, I don't know. So it's a question of, does does he really believe his own rhetoric? I mean, people tell me he's a very clever man, so if that's the answer to that is that he is a clever man, then he doesn't believe his own rhetoric, and maybe we will get a, a good uh, arrangement. But whether... I mean, look, I mm. the EU and Canada took 10 years to negotiate. Yeah. Um, there is no way under this that we can do the whole job inside one inside a 12-month period.
1: Well, this is what's lost to most of us. Most of us think that if a Brexit happens by the 31st of January, that's it. But uh, that just means the negotiations start.
9: Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, over and over again, people were saying, you know, the, the, there were three issues to be resolved to now. The amount of the divorce bill, the citizens' rights Both UK citizens in the EU and EU citizens in the UK, and the third was the Irish border. And look how long it's taken to get to that point. Now we have to negotiate every single standard that a manufacturer operates to, that food companies operate to, Mm. health and safety regulations. You know, and every those of us who are in business are well aware of the fact that. You know, the regulations in relation to to business 10 years ago are not the regulations today. Now, sometimes we complain bitterly about regulations. I mean, as an accountant, I'm actually doing CPD. I have to keep myself up to date on a constant basis, and I have to do so many hours before the end of the year. All of those type of regulations have applied on a European-wide basis. There is no way the British are going to be allowed to set their own standards at a lower level and then wipe the floor with, with us. That's not good. And us being Europe, that's not going to happen. And
1: But us who are outside of the negotiations really won't be in a position to talk about this until this time next year, at the earliest. As you say, some of these big trade deal negotiations can take up to a decade to complete. So is it a question of steady as she goes for the next 12 months?
9: Well, I think the one thing that we can see is that... Um, Phil Hogan, and I've had my runs in with that man, let's put it that way. Um, I've known him for over 40 years, and he's a hard nut. Uh, he was Commissioner for Agriculture in the last, uh, he, in the last uh, Parliament. He is now the Commissioner for Trade. He is going to be the main person negotiating. And I, my attitude would have been any Irishman would have been, if we had an Irishman in that post, we have somebody that's, that's playing for home and can watch it. Um, and whether it's Phil or whether it's somebody else that might be replaced by another government it doesn't matter he's there to do the, you know the EU by positioning the Irish person as the trade negotiator gives a clear indication Britain is not going to get an easy ride on this they're going to have to comply they're going to have to wire, uh, work on a pretty quick cool basis I mean one of the things that's sticking out of mind is Johnson went up to Hull and promised EU fishermen and um, British fishermen you have your own waters back mm. I mean the Danes Didn't take till Friday afternoon to put a claim in and said, "Oh no, you don't." You know, so Mm. you know it's it's there's the certainty, there's the fact that Boris Johnson does a deal. It's not like Theresa May where you know that if he shakes hands with somebody, Phil Hogan or anybody else on Michel Barnier in Brussels and says, "Deal done," we know that the the deal is done and we can plan on that basis. so from that point of view, it's a, it's a good situation,
1: and the, the problem, panic is I mean, over, isn't it? I, I mean, there's no reason to panic, uh, and won't be for the next twelve months and probably long after that. because yeah,
9: I, uh, I, I would agree. I think free
1: movement of trade uh, is uh, most likely set to continue.
9: I mean, I think there's a couple of things that will that will become obvious very quickly. One is that Johnson's statements that there isn't a border down the Irish Sea will be shown to be false. Mm. Uh, there will be checks at Larne and Stranraer, whether the DUP like it or not. That is the way it's happened. That's what's happened. The majority of uh, people in Northern Ireland have now indicated twice, in effect, that they want to be, remain part of the EU. So that they... You know, it's not that I want, it's, I mean, obviously most of us in the South want to see a United Ireland, but there's definitely a situation where there has been a shift in Northern Ireland's thinking as to where its long-term interests are. Now, it's a long way from there to, to a uh, United Ireland or anything like that, but we do need to plan in the South on the basis of an economic island. um Recognizing the different jurisdictions and everything else, but that's good for business and it's particularly good for people in the Dock. I mean,
1: is that what you think will be the upshot of uh, the Tory victory? Uh, 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 an economic island on the island of Ireland.
9: I, I mean, funnily enough, I mean, the they, Dáil set up a committee to look at this in 2014. Padre Tobin was the man that called for it. And I remember on behalf of the Dock Chamber making both a written submission and an oral submission subsequently. Um, I think it was, you know, uh, a lot of it was wishful thinking at the time, but there was the basis there of some plan to sit down and look at it. I think the 2040 plan that the government produced in 2017, with a lot of shouting from the Dock Chamber and myself, uh, the, the significant difference between the initial draft and the final draft, mm. in that the final draft Objective 2B was the linkage between and Dundalk, Newry. And you and I have listened, yeah. to, I've talked to you enough times about the M1 mm-hmm. corridor and the, and the realization of that. There are slow, minute steps all in the one direction. Uh, businesses now in, the, in Northern Ireland recognize that they do need an EU uh, passport. They do, And we've seen a number of businesses coming down from the north down to Dundalk to set up some sort of an operation on one or two occasions what they thought was going to be, a, a, you know, a, a tokenism uh, has ended up being substantially more, uh, has, has uh, been, become much more substantial. Um, so, yeah, I do mm-hmm. think there is a, a, an integration North-South happening. Um, now, that's not to say that East-West won't remain and, and, and Northern Ireland won't remain part of the UK, but economically, I think the two are, the two are moving closer together. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the same, Boris Johnson faces the same problem with Scotland. I mean, the Scots are definitely, you know, pro European yep. and they are going in that direction. And, yeah,
1: and they say the election has uh, given a, a mandate to move uh, forward another referendum on independence. But given how we were facing into the abyss with all of this Brexit stuff, uh, do you think uh, the election was a, a good thing for Ireland and uh, the outcome was uh, I, the thinking, best possible outcome?
9: I, I, well, I think clarity, business always wants clarity. And I think there isn't a business in the dark that, and there isn't somebody that I haven't talked to within the business community that hasn't said, thank God that we know where well. What's happening, and I think on the short term basis, I think the fact that Sterling strengthened so considerably over the last couple of days means that Irish Dundalk retailers can look forward to a very good Christmas. We are not going to see uh, an exodus of people going into the north because it's just not going to be worth the while. And in fact, if anything, I'll be hoping that there will be some people from Uri coming down and shopping in Dundalk where there would be better value.
1: Okay, great stuff. we leave it on that note and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Paddy Malone, P.R.O. with uh, the Chamber of Commerce in Dundalk brings our programme to its conclusion. Our programme has run out of time for another day and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye bye.
2: The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.
1: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.